Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. During the next presentation, may I request your absolute silence, for I have a message of great importance for everyone in the audience. Now remember, please, absolute quiet. In a world where the fireflies are on the upper deck and the horseflies are on the fireflies, where a college widow stands for plenty, and we're all invited to the wedding of Aunt Fanny's eight-pound boy. There are only two and sometimes three men, and sometimes guests, who can talk about the Marx Brothers this damn much. Conium. Diamond. The Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 63. Coming Attractions. This episode is not yet rated. I am Matthew Conium's co-host, Noah Diamond, and I'm here with Noah Diamond's co-host, Matthew Conium. Hello, Matthew. <laughs> hey, that's me. How the heck are you? I'm pretty the heck good, and how about you, Matthew? Yeah, I'm pretty the heck fine. Before we uh, get into this episode, we have the rare privilege of breaking news, breaking news from the world of the Marx Brothers. We do indeed. Uh, John Tefteller, the indefatigable John Tefteller, who uh, most of you will uh, need no introduction to, and indeed who we will uh, be mentioning again later on, um, has turned up a recording of uh, a Groucho appearance that was uh, thought to have been entirely unrecorded, which is his appearance at Northwestern University back in 1970. Uh, one of his contacts in the uh, the shady record business has sent him uh, a photograph of a tape, probably recorded from the stalls, of this uh, kind of semi-legendary Groucho live appearance. It was from before the uh, evening with period, just before, before the stroke, uh, when he was, uh, you know, reasonably hale and hearty, uh, recorded at McGaw Hall at Northwestern University in Evansville, Illinois, for all you Evansville, Illinois fans. It's actually um, Evanston. I, I grew up right near there. It's Evanston. Ah, Evanston, Illinois, for all you Evansville, Illinois fans. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, it was it was um, very well received. Uh, Gene Siskel reviewed it at the time, and he wrote, though his reminiscences about the early days were frequently lacklustre, Groucho proved he can still ad lib. Asked, "Do you smoke cheap cigars or expensive cigars?" He replied, "It depends on whom I'm with. When I'm with you, I smoke cheap cigars." When an admirer gave him a drawing of his face, Marx reluctantly autographed it, saying, maybe you should take another whack at it. Uh, he also <laughs> candidly admitted that he didn't like Minnie's boys and said that his wives didn't want to work or to iron clothes. They just wanted to preen themselves in front of an audience. So it looks like we're, we, we've got a fairly, uh, a fairly candid uh, and uh, an interesting Groucho bit of audio out there, which uh, John, needless to say, will be restoring. And uh, who knows, we may even get to hear it sometime in the next century. Well, that really is exciting news. And I think for all of our um, mixed emotions about the Groucho recordings that we have from just slightly after that, um, boy, it would be interesting to hear him speaking at length to a live audience in 1970. John, we love you. Let's get that out there. <laughs> well, uh, we have a packed episode, Matthew, um, with a lot going on. Uh, first, listeners, before your very ears, we are going to discuss the trailers 
of the films of the Marx Brothers. We will then talk to one of the stars of an upcoming film, which is full of Marx Brothers references. That film is Our Almost Completely True Love Story. And the star and co-writer is Jerry Soroka. We'll be talking to him later this episode in a kind of sequel to our interview with that film's director, Don Scardino, two episodes ago. And then finally, at the end of this episode, we have a particularly exciting Patreon update with news of how you can win a beautiful Coconuts movie poster. Should I say it? I'm just going to say it, Matthew. Say it. Signed by Groucho Marx in 1976. And uh, we'll say no more about it now. What I just said was a trailer (laughs) for what we will say later this episode. Well, trailers, trailers, trailers. We should mention that the trailers we're going to be talking about, the trailers for the Marx Brothers films, uh, we're going to make available on the Marx Brothers Council podcast YouTube channel in one video with all of the Marx Brothers trailers. So if you want to watch them with us as you listen to this episode, that's where they are. And we'll also, of course, post a link on our website. It is generally accepted that the trailer was born in November of 1913, that the first trailer shown in a movie theater was not for an upcoming film, but for a Broadway musical review called The Pleasure Seekers, and that it was the brainchild of the Swedish-American producer and promoter and eventual radio personality Nils Granlund. He was born Nils Theodore Granlund, but he later decided that the middle initial T stood for not Edgar, but Thor. Nils Thor Granlund, producer, promoter, and hammer-wielding Norse god. In 1913, Granlund was the publicity agent for Marcus Lowe's chain of movie theaters, and he had the idea to show a few minutes of rehearsal footage from The Pleasure Seekers, this Broadway review, following feature films at Lowe's theaters as a means of promoting the show. And within a year of that, Granlund was following movies with promotional slides advertising Charlie Chaplin's early Max Sennett comedies, unmistakably demonstrating a publicist's relationship with the truth. Granlund thereafter insisted that he had discovered Charlie Chaplin. Before long, trailers consisting of clips from forthcoming films accompanied by promotional text on the screen were common practice. Trailers were moved from being shown after films to being shown before them, but they were still called, and are still called, trailers. From 1919 through the 1950s, virtually all American movie trailers were produced by a New Jersey-based company called the National Screen Service, which is one reason why there is such a stylistic sameness to trailers from the studio era, even from different studios. In the 1960s, directors, notably Hitchcock and Kubrick, started to assert more control over their trailers and make them more artful sort of distillations of the films they were promoting. And not long after that, the stentorian inner world uh, narration that I lampooned at the top of this episode became conventional. In the studio period, and therefore in the entire film career of the Marx Brothers, Contracts from the National Screen Service required that all trailers be returned after use or destroyed, but they didn't require proof of destruction, and theater owners often hung on to them or gave them to collectors. Theoretically, 
every surviving Hollywood movie trailer from 1919 through the late 50s survives in violation of national screen service contracts. Movie trailers were released well in advance of the films they represented, and for most of the 20th century, they were never separately copyrighted. So most trailers are in the public domain. And for that reason, trailers dominate the kinds of cheap public domain home video collections that we've sometimes talked about on this show. And in our world, many Marx Brothers fans know some of these trailers as well as they know the films themselves from having seen them so many times in documentaries and uh, old VHS collections. Before we get into the specific uh, Marx Brothers trailers, what are your general thoughts, Matthew, on this phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I didn't know all that background, actually, about, um, what were they called? Screen? Uh, the National Screen Service. National Screen Service, yeah. I mean, obviously, that that provides an obvious and coherent explanation as to why uh, trailers do seem to be so routinely filled with alternate takes. Slightly different versions, uh, particularly if, if you're as familiar with the Marx Brothers films as, as we are, and, I, and I'm assuming... Uh, that many of you listening are. It's always a slightly uh, jolting experience to see uh, in these trailers incredibly familiar lines and familiar moments done just that little bit differently. Uh, and obviously, that you know, that's why, because these guys were sent uh, the, the unused takes uh, to get to work on while the studio were getting to work on the, on the film proper. Yeah, and it also explains why the earlier you get in the trailer era, the harder trailers are to come by, because early trailers for silent films couldn't be attached to talkies after talkies became the thing. And, you know, particularly the trailer for the first film, The Coconuts, must have accompanied many silent movies, because there weren't many non-silent movies yet at the time. Uh, and that may be why an original 1929 Coconuts trailer doesn't seem to be available. Unless anyone out there knows differently, in which case, let us know post-haste. Yeah, for that one, we are basically left to our imaginations. I can. It's hard to believe that a trailer shown for the Coconuts prior to its original release didn't make a big deal about the fact that it was a synchronized sound musical. Yes, and and of course that it was that it was introducing the, this uh, this Broadway sensation. Uh, I should imagine there would be a lot of ballyhooing along those lines too. Yeah, but the official Coconuts trailer that's available now seems pretty clearly to be um, something that was put together later. Not that it's so terribly sophisticated, but it just doesn't have much in common with other early trailers that we know. It's essentially a series of short clips from the film with a narration over the title card. And when you look at the very early ones that we do have, particularly uh, Animal Crackers and, and Monkey Business, they do have a very different flavour from uh, the more familiar kind of uh, studio era uh, trailers. For, for instance, Duck Soup, I would, I would argue, is the first one that really does look like what we would think of now as a, as a professional 1930s trailer. Um, Animal Crackers and Monkey Business have a, a much more antique charm to them, don't they? Yeah, and... Given the presence, as you note, of some alternate takes and unfamiliar footage in some of these other trailers, um, it, it only makes us wish more powerfully that we had a real 1929 Coconuts trailer, because we know a lot was shot and removed from that film. It's very likely. It yes. Some on a 
on a statistical percentage basis, there's more chance yeah. there than, than in any other any other movie, isn't there? Yeah. Yes, but unfortunately, uh, there isn't. Now, the, the Coconuts trailer that exists, you can find it on YouTube, uh, courtesy of Universal. So that seems to be the trailer. Uh, but interestingly, it doesn't it's not included as a bonus feature on the Coconuts DVD uh, or Blu-ray. Well, finally, we get to Animal Crackers and a real authentic trailer from 1930. Um, and as you note, Matthew, it is uh, it has a distinct antique quality. Some of the text on the screen, the four funniest men on earth, coconuttier than ever, reminding us that Coconuts was synonymous with the Marx Brothers at this point and that Coconuts had been a huge popular hit. But it's nice that they have little, actual little sort of animated title sequences for the trailers rather than just superimposing text over over uh, imagery from the films, which is what we're, we're more used to. They have these nice little musical uh, intros, don't they, before going into the uh, in, into what they've got to show. Animal Crackers is, is an odd one, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem to be selling what you would expect it to be, to be selling. So it's very focused on the music it begins with that very long sequence of, of Groucho coming in uh in the um in the, the you know the African chair thing uh and then ends with him with him getting out only once yes only once Chico and Harpo get their own little intro title cards uh, Groucho and Zeppo don't yeah which is very strange um it's it's quite focused as I said on the music um I was also very amused by the the um, the uh, suggestion that you come three times and try to catch all the laughs, absolutely spelling out yeah. what uh, you know what was said in the reviews, and it just it just makes me wish that there was one in in the MGMs uh, saying uh, come once and try to fill all the pauses. <laughs> yeah, I think in the the Animal Crackers trailer, um, the shot of Chico doing the Victor Herbert joke at the piano is an alternate take. I play now one of my own compositions by Victor Herbert. Yes. It's both an, a slightly different shot visually and Chico's delivery is a little different. Um, and it also doesn't include Groucho's response uh, and keep it short. Um, and mm. it, it that feels very different. Uh, and yes, you're right about the emphasis on the music. And I guess maybe that's why Harpo and Chico get these spotlight moments with their names on the screen, mm. because the harp and piano solos. And this is true throughout many of these trailers. The solos, the instrumental solos get a lot of attention and a real spotlight, I suppose, because in the early days of synchronized sound, that was a big deal, getting to see musical performances like that on film. Um, and also maybe because, as Thalberg was keenly aware, those were elements of the films that appealed to non-Marx Brothers fans. Yeah. Uh, ten times funnier than the coconuts, the trailer claims. <laughs> Actually, guys, I'm going to pop in here. I was just looking at the Animal Crackers trailer again. And if you go to like 37 seconds, right when it says uh, coca nuttier than ever, right before it cuts to Chico, you could see it's fading to Zeppo, actually. Zeppo is being spotlighted, oh. and then it cuts to Chico. Ah. So I think this has been edited or cut at some point after it came out, so that might explain why we don't have Zeppo or Groucho. Yeah, They did get a bit each, but inexplicably uh, Groucho's regard you know never mind Zeppo but you know Groucho's has been has been snipped out for some reason then. Yeah, and it also 
brings the question, what clipboard are they going to show for Zeppo? Right. Yes. Might have been scratching Elsie. Maybe we would have gotten that earlier. Scratch Elsie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or coming down the stairs, maybe that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Sneaking off. Well, I guess that's another item on our list. Uh, if anyone can hunt this down, a complete Animal Crackers trailer, which includes Zeppo's and Groucho's spotlight moments. Yeah. Uh, there's some uh, music I couldn't identify in the Animal Crackers trailer. There's the uh, theme at the beginning is familiar from Groucho's entrance. Uh, but then during the stretch of text on the screen, there's some uh, kind of swinging 30s Hollywood music that uh, I can't place. Maybe somebody else can. Monkey Business is our next trailer. I think the beginning of this trailer, we get a sense of how quickly and perhaps sloppily uh, the National Screen Service was working on some (laughs) of the text on screen here. It says, you who have laughs to spread, prepare to spread them now. I'm presuming that that is is a reference to um, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now from... From Julius Caesar, uh, Mark Antony's line from Julius Caesar. I think. I mean, it's hard to tell, but yes, uh, that was my guess. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Very shrewd, Matthew. <laughs> I couldn't make any sense out of that. Prepare to spread them now. Sounds like something Ch- Chico <laughs> might have said in his dressing room. But <laughs> uh, once again, uh, as with the uh, Animal Crackers trailer, refers to the team as the funniest men in the world. You roared at them in the coconuts. You yelled with joy at Animal Crackers. Also, like the Animal Crackers trailer, we get the Marx Brothers' names with their portraits appearing in the letter O at the end of each name. Also, those photographs that are very familiar to fans of the brothers in director's chairs from the front and the back, uh, those photos appear in this trailer. I suppose they appear for the first time in this trailer and maybe were created specifically for it. There's an odd, an odd choice of of um, lines, isn't it? They're by no means unfunny. They're they're they're, they're good lines, but they give it the impression of having been chosen at random. They're they're, they're not standout lines. Um, but again, the, the the really noticeable thing in this one is that all the funny business that we get to see is Groucho. We only get music clips for Harpo and Chico. Um, poor old Zeppo, although we see him popping up out of the barrel. <laughs> After that, we, we, we don't get any Zeppo at all in this one. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Very short shrift. Even though he has one of his larger parts in, in this film. They obviously knew they had something good with that image of the brothers popping out of barrels. I mean, they start with that. They knew that was a winner. And a lot of emphasis on the uh, harp and piano solos again. And a pretty obvious alternate take from the Groucho and Thelma Todd scene. Mm, the most exciting one yet in the, in their uh, in their trailer canon. When he when he says I rest my case, uh, he he puts a slightly different emphasis on the line and then adds right here and pats the bed. Your Honor, I rest my case right here. Yeah, very racy stuff. And the text on the screen promises lunacy is still a pleasure. Just in case you were worried that after Animal Crackers, lunacy was no longer a pleasure. 
and this one again doesn't it starts with 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 its own little uh title sequence so it's it's the last uh well i say it's the last uh, maybe it isn't because uh we're, we're coming up, up to another absence but in in terms of what we've got it's the last of those kind of specially prepared little mini film trailers and uh we move into the the kind of the classic trailer era next or do we or do we? Yeah, it is true. We're getting to a more familiar style of of a Hollywood studio trailer, um, but we've we've got nothing here for Horse Feathers, which is uh, a real shame because again, it's a film we would be particularly interested in seeing some alternate film from. Uh, the official available Horse Feathers trailer is much like the Coconuts trailer. It's a series of clips. Uh, with continuous music behind them. Uh, The title screen from the movie appears at the beginning and end of the trailer, and in some versions it has what sounds very much like a later 20th century narration saying, here are the Marx Brothers. Uh, But it's too bad. This is one place where we conceivably could have seen some uninterrupted uh, footage from the Thelma Todd scene. However, unlike the coconuts, I believe there's some better news about this one yeah also from camp tefteller yes john tefteller yet again uh tells us that he has in fact located an original horse feathers trailer and that it's uh, it's good stuff and he's uh, beavering away at it as we speak breaking news literally as we are talking about the horse feathers trailer because i had texted John earlier today asking if he could give us any more info. I literally, within the last 30 seconds, got this text back from him. It's all animation, no film clips, but really cool animation with a great musical score. Runs just a couple of minutes. Wow. all animation. Wow. Well, you heard it here first, and so did we. (laughs) Ooh. 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 I wonder, Matthew, we're so flustered. This doesn't happen very often. (laughs) We don't know what to do with ourselves. I wonder if it's the same uh, animation style as, you know, the animation at the beginning of the film. Yeah, with the horse coming out and all that stuff, yeah. Maybe it's the boudoir scene animated. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, we're all uh, making our... uh, holiday gift lists uh, this time of year. Everything on my list is something in John Tefteller's collection. Uh, well, I guess there is at least hope that we may see this uh, animated original Horse Feathers trailer at some point in the future. Uh, until that day, moving on to Duck Soup. This one feels much more like a familiar trailer from the 30s or 40s. In fact, when I was looking at it before I uh, learned some of the background material about the National Screen Service, I was struck by like, oh, this feels like an MGM trailer. Very much, yeah. Particularly with its emphasis on kind of chaos, loud noises, rather than 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 wit. Yeah, very much like the Day at the Races trailer, which we'll talk about in a mm. little while. It begins with, um, in this case, text on the screen, asking for attention and quiet. The, the management requests absolute silence during the following presentation. And then that's followed by a bunch of quick and noisy and chaotic clips from the film, which are both more assuredly edited than anything in the previous trailers we've seen. And also 
um, it's a kind of distilled way of conveying a big part of what the Marx Brothers are all about. You know, we have first a very uh, stoic, sober request for seriousness and quiet, and then that gets torn down by a lot of uh, outlandish behavior and noise. It's one of the shortest trailers, isn't it? And quite quite stingy on material, I think. Very, yeah. M- most of the material in it is in the form of uh, lettering on the screen. Close the doors, close the windows. They're loose again. The four Marx Brothers galloping through their maddest, merriest musical show. Uh, there's an alternate take of um, Groucho's line to Margaret Dumont at the tea party, Oh, Your Excellency, I must speak to you. I'll see you at the theater tonight. I'll hold your seat till you get there. After you get there, you're on your own. Uh, It's very close to the take we know, but this morning I watched them back to back, and it's definitely a little different. The fact that there are no harp and piano excerpts here confirms, I suppose, that they were not filmed, that they were scrapped from the project before anything went in front of cameras. That's something we've, we've wondered about a little bit in the past. Um, and there is a very generous amount of the Fredonia's going to war number. So even without the solos, the emphasis on music is there. Yes, yeah. And I think there's a there's a different angle, isn't there, when Harpo is snipping the, the plumes off the helmets? Oh, I didn't notice, but I'm sure you're right. I could be wrong, but I, I think I, I, somebody has said that to me. So we can, we, can, we can put that forward as a provisional claim. Sounds reasonable. This is another one, Duck Soup. We know that the film changed a lot as it was worked on um, before, during, and after the shooting. So this is a trailer that could have shown us uh, a lot more, probably, that we don't know, but, uh, but not very much, as it turns out. Interestingly, the radio promo for Duck Soup, which is a seven-minute uh, radio promo for Duck Soup, uh, <laughs> that uh, many of us have have heard and and we will link to has a lot more of this kind of thing than the trailer does it has alternate takes of familiar material it has familiar material that goes on further than in the movie and has extra lines in it and things and there's even a an extra verse of the uh laws of my administration song too bad they didn't use duck soup's potential biggest selling point like say goodbye to zeppo <laughs> <laughs> if they, they had a, a man at a desk uh, soberly announced that Zeppo Marx yes. was retiring from the silver screen. <laughs> and the crowd's cheering and, and celebrating, yeah. <laughs> so yes, we, we, lose, we do lose Zeppo now as we move over to, uh, to MGM and, and opera. Uh, when we compare the two movies, Duck Soup and Opera, we, we are aware of a, of a considerable uh, leap being taken that we're, we're really not aware, are we, when we're just comparing those those. The two trailers because the as as you so rightly said there there's something very mgm-ish about that duck soup trailer yeah particularly the way the text works the way it moves um and the way it sets up the uh, clips from the movie yeah it's in a style that until recently i would have thought of as an mgm trailer style but i suppose is more the house style of the national screen service Now, the Night at the Opera trailer that we have available to us is not from 1935, right? It's a re-release trailer. 
it is a re-release trailer. My my guess is it is is it is essentially the the original trailer that's just been been tinkered with slightly. I mean, certainly there's there's a a scrolling caption bit in the middle that is that has very clearly just been stamped over the original, isn't there? At the end, it says uh, it's a Metro Goldwyn Mayer masterpiece reprint. Um, but my guess is that the bulk of it is the original trailer, and this one, of course, is is very very valuable in that it preserves the the Mark's Lions intro that was intended for the movie and dropped. Yeah, that that delightful and familiar bit of footage uh, comes to us through this trailer, um, and wherever we see it, this is where it's taken from. Uh, the Marx is roaring in place of Leo the Lion under the motto Marx Gratia Marxes, which I think means Marxes for the sake of Marxes. <laughs> the uh, text on the screen says, everything's topsy-turvy. Call out the army and the navy. The Marx brothers are back and the world is swaying, shaking with laughter, cheers, applause for not only the funniest, but the most important comedy ever made. That is a claim that we've pondered at length in, in the Facebook group because it, it's it's not mere hyperbole. You know, if it, if it called it the funniest comedy ever made, you can write that off as as hyperbole. But to call it the most important, they they've clearly got something in mind there, haven't they? There, there's something going on in their little heads, but I don't know what it is. Why is it the most important comedy? Yeah, I know. And especially considering that it certainly isn't. I mean, even if you think, <laughs> even if you do think it's the funniest comedy ever made, there's no argument, even in 1935, that it's the most important. Uh, and that it would pride itself on not being, you know, it's it's kind of the way it comes at you is is by not being that, you know, it's not it's clearly not the great dictator. Yeah, maybe it's um, a joke. I mean, it may it may be that it's a joke to call it that we're just making grand claims in an mm. ironic way um or maybe it's connected to you know the it's hitting very hard the point that this is a more prestigious marx brothers product than the films that they used to make at paramount and i mean mm. thalberg uh, did have a sense of uh important itis about him you know and uh, <laughs> maybe that's uh, maybe that's the angle but it's certainly strange that uh, scrolling text that you mentioned that intrudes on the trailer uh, around the midpoint says one of the screen's outstanding comedy hits comes back in a gale of laughter it's glorious music it's gay hilarity as new and fresh as ever coming back as new as ever <laughs> okay uh, one thing about this trailer that is interesting is there's a clip from the stateroom scene and uh, the name of the actress who plays the manicurist is superimposed on the screen <laughs> it was nice to find out about that finally. yeah at last yeah that's, i wonder why we didn't think of looking at the trailer in the first place <laughs> seems such an obvious thing to have done now but anyway you live and learn it was a re-release. She didn't necessarily have the same name in 1935. Uh, generally speaking, the clips don't sound like alternate takes to me, or at least they're not 
sufficiently different to to be exciting alternate takes but what is exciting um apart from the uh, the lions um is the shot of the aviators arriving in a ticker tape parade uh which uh, is um not not from the the end of the film uh because we know that they were dressed in in top hat and tails for that so this is this is from from that aviator scene that we do have but uh, just a little extra bit of that yeah, and it seems there's a fairly familiar production still, isn't there, that is also a, a moment from this scene that's uh, obviously a night at the opera, obviously the aviator's piece, but uh, not a moment that actually occurs in the film. So, yeah, all in all, the most important trailer ever made. Yeah, I would say so, yes. <laughs> uh, all right, then, uh, shall we to the races? Yeah, let's let's head off to the races. Um, it has been suggested that this one is also a reissue. Um, it could be. It could well be. But I tend to think probably not, partly because reissued trailers, as we've just seen with opera, um, maybe not always, but often say that they are. Uh, and particularly if you know if you look at opera, uh, not only does it have that little caption at the end, it's a it's a Metro Goldwyn Mayer mouthpiece reprint, but it's it's kind of updating the claims made for it. It's saying it's as funny as it always was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we get nothing like that here at all. There's none of the uh, obviously added bits like the scrolling caption from opera. The suggestion was that the uh, frankly appalling uh, introductory sequence where an actor uh, who I, I'm afraid I don't know the name of comes on, calls for silence and gets a pie in the face, uh, that that might have been added uh, for a reissue. One would certainly like to think so, but, I, but I, I don't think so. I think it would be very unusual. Perhaps somebody can can uh, prove me wrong on this, but I would think it would be very unusual to go to the effort of, of shooting brand new, irrelevant footage like that just, just for a reissue. Also, uh, it's, a, it's a small point, but when his bit uh, segues into the uh, clips, uh, it does so using the same expanding O-shaped optical effect as the subsequent clips segue into each other. So for all those reasons, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cautiously maintain that this is the original trailer, that they did see fit to put it out with this, this utterly... Uh, you know, uh, no idea of what the Marx Brothers are <laughs> leading. Yeah, the pies in the guy's face are particularly galling as it's a sort of slapstick trope that the Marx Brothers themselves never or... Yeah. yeah I don't think ever uh, indulged in. Mm. Uh, but it does recall the Duck Soup trailer, a, uh, a sort of authoritative demand for silence and respect followed by evidence in the form of clips from the film of how noisy and disrespectful <laughs> the movie is going to be. Uh, obviously, there's an attempt to connect the film to the success of A Night at the Opera, uh, not just through the format of its title, but text on the screen saying, the spectacular successor to A Night at the Opera. And in a move that I suppose became something of a convention, um, the text on the screen tells us, with Alan Jones singing love songs to Maureen O'Sullivan. Uh, we get a little bit of this in the later MGM trailers, too. We highlight the male romantic lead and then the female romantic lead's ability or perhaps willingness to listen to him <laughs> <laughs> singing love songs. 
One thing that's always a little bit uh, surprising if you're not used to uh, older entertainment publicity for the Marx Brothers films and also for their stage shows is the emphasis on girls. I mean, Mm. girls with an exclamation mark. I mean, it makes you think of, you know, Times Square in the 70s, but it's a sort of more innocent version of that. Yeah, laughs, songs, girls, always the the big triumvirate, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, touting... uh, uh, feminine pulchritude as a real selling point of the movie, a reason to go, and um, and I suppose it was, and often quite fraudulently as well. I mean, uh, there's particularly in, in the later MGMs, there's, there's really not a lot of that stuff to be seen, is there? But uh, it's always on the posters. It's always in the claim, isn't it? Always, yes. And and this trailer, I mean, of all the things in a day at the races that they might want to tout in advance. The water carnival really gets some attention, and I suppose it's because <laughs> there are some uh, silhouetted uh, legs and torsos uh, shown in that scene. And, you know, I, I suppose they were selling tickets. I think we've got an, uh, a very clear alternate take of the uh, in back of you moment here, haven't we? Oh, is it? I didn't catch that. Yes. Yeah. Nothing, nothing exciting, but just a different, different emphasis, I think, on the line. Hmm. Well, now we get to RKO for a single film, Room Service. But as we know, it's still the National Screen Service (laughs) creating these trailers. And perhaps for that reason, the the tone is familiar, even though the film is, as we know, very different. And uh, the trailer acknowledges that. We know RKO was very proud of itself for spending a ton of money on the rights to room service. One of the ways we know that is from this trailer. It says on the screen, record price paid by RKO Radio to bring celebrated stage play from Broadway to you with laughs all the way. Yes, there's two there's two ways of looking at this one, really, isn't there? You can either look at it from the point of view of uh, of honesty and advertising, or you can look at it from the point of view of the trailer maker's art. And I think if you look at it from the point of view of the trailer maker's art, uh, this is a very good one because it it does make the film look considerably wilder than it is. It does make the film look considerably more of a Marx Brothers film than it is. Absolutely right. It also does a pretty good job of making it feel like it's this big event, you know, like this is a a real treat, a privilege to be able to see not only this uh, the comedy that panicked Broadway is the, the yeah the the play that panicked Broadway is what it says on the screen, but also that by adding the Marx Brothers to that play, you're getting something better than the sum of its parts, rather than what it in reality is, which is something somewhat lesser than the sum of its parts. <laughs> Just an extended sitcom in two rooms. Yes. <laughs> but the trailer tells us the Marx Brothers are funnier, loonier, better than ever as they romp through the play that panicked Broadway. Well, none out of three ain't bad. <laughs> uh, there don't seem to be any alternate takes or uh, surprises here, do, do there? No surprises. I wonder uh, if it's a slightly different take of uh, we can dump him in the alley. You know, I, I, one thing that is interesting about that moment, I'm not sure if it's a different take or not, but there is music behind Chico doing that line that I think is from the soundtrack of the film, but it, it just... The music there sounds kind of melancholy. It's a sort of dirge-like symphonic thing happening on the soundtrack. And Chico is striking an interesting pose in an unfamiliar jacket with his wig and no hat. You know, he doesn't really look like Chico traditionally looks. Mm. It just seems 
oddly like a moment from some melodrama. We could dump yes. him in the alley. It's not a funny line or anything, you know. Mm. Uh, so it is a strange moment. And yeah, maybe worth another look to see if it, if it is possibly an alternate take uh, or an alternate shot. Uh, to an extent that the other trailers so far haven't, uh, this one gives some of the supporting players little uh, spotlight moments. Um, yes. With some descriptive text on the screen. Lucille Ball as a front girl looking for a backer. Uh, Frank Albertson as the playwright. Very exciting. And then just Anne Miller with nothing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, just Anne Miller. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but it does actually um, introduce the ensemble in a way that's kind of nice. I think um, in the races uh, and opera trailers, uh, the romantic leads get moments like that. But even Margaret Dumont and the various uh, heavies in those films uh, don't really get much of a moment in the trailer. So it's interesting. Maybe that's emphasized here as a way of connecting it with the original play. Donald McBride gets a nice little caption as well, doesn't he? Something like efficiency expert or something. Yeah. Yes. And we get to hear him say, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, but Which I think. always a treat. <laughs> yeah. But but not jumping <laughs> butterballs. Interesting. I don't think he, does he say mm, that in the trailer? Mm. No, I don't think he does. I don't think, so. I don't think he does. Well, uh, that is room service. So yeah, back to MGM and and circus, and and we go from a, from a trailer that makes the film look considerably better than it is to one that, that somehow manages to make it look even worse than it is. Um, it, it, it takes forever to get going, which for a trailer is surely the very essence of of, of not fit for purpose, isn't it? You, we get literally a minute of text before we're, before we're given any any funnies. The whole thing is three and a quarter minutes, which may not sound very long, but given that there's only about twenty seconds of comedy and a big chunk of Kenny Baker and the rest is pretty much all captions isn't it yeah it's strange and yet although as you're saying it is definitely a, a, a sort of lame and ineffective trailer for the film um, it doesn't seem to be trying to make it look like a great comedy uh, in another sense it is a little bit more artful than some of these other trailers we've talked about. I mean, all of the typography is done in this kind of circus poster style. Yes. Uh, they, uh, Edward Bazell is credited as uh, ringmaster. Yeah, ringmaster Edward yeah. Bazell. Yeah, and there's even like what look like actual circus poster designs uh, that flash on the screen with some of these uh, bits of promotional text attached to them. Colossal Congress of Stuff and Things. the wonder show of mirth and melody and my favorite at one point a a superimposed circus poster says plus thousands of wild animals actors and people (laughs) it brings to mind the line from uh, the producers uh, in which uh, Franz the Nazi playwright decides he's going to kill the cast of uh, the play and uh Leo Bloom says, you can't do that. Actors are people. And Max Bialystok says, did you ever eat with one? (laughs) (laughs) The distinction between actors and people is being made here in 1939. And presumably the you know the the ballyhoo is all part of the joke as well. But it, but but even so, the idea that there are there are thousands of anything in this film, <laughs> let, let, let alone wild animals. Wild. <laughs> it's animals. like one 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 mangy lion, pretty much, isn't it? And 
and, a, and a, a man in a gorilla suit is about all you're going to get. And an ostrich. <laughs> and an ostrich. Yeah, there's a reason why this one doesn't start with a request for silence. You know, there's <laughs> not much to do about that. I noticed that when uh, Florence Rice and Kenny Baker are introduced in this trailer, we see distinctly unflattering clips of them. Uh, we get more of them later. We see some of Two Blind Loves. But when we first see their names on the screen, it's just footage of them without sound that seems to have been taken at random from their scenes. Florence Rice is practically caught in a yawn when her face, <laughs> her face appears, which may be very appropriate. Uh, well, the same certainly applies to the, the, the shot of Groucho that we see when uh, when his name comes up, doesn't it? I, I didn't recognize it from the film. It may be in the film. Uh, but Christ knows what he's doing. I mean, it, it certainly uh, is all the warning you need of the uh, the process of repulsification that he's undergone in this film, isn't it? What he's up to, I have no idea. But he's certainly giving it all, isn't he? He's giving it the full buzzle. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's strange moments. And maybe they, with this trailer, they put all their energy into designing all that circus stuff. And when it came time to select clips, they just closed their eyes and pointed. <laughs> Ponderous panorama of beauty and spectacle. Five titanic, gigantic musical presentations. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's yes. mighty miracle of musical magnificence. Five presentations, which gets um, gets them out of having to admit that at least one of the songs is done twice. Yeah. So is that what they're talking yes. about? That so Lydia presumably yeah. step up and take a bow twice. Step up gets two. Yeah. <laughs> gets. To... Um, and I guess they're not counting the harp and piano uh, solos as as being titanic, gigantic musical presentations. No. Um, but they do get the customary special attention in this preview that they get in most of these previews. Well, it certainly is a big time under the big top. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> as we know, when we get to the late 30s, it's it's all downhill from here, folks. Uh, uh, the Go West trailer. Actually, the Go West trailer has one interesting detail that I will I'll open with this uh, I learned a word from this trailer a term um, we're told by text on the screen that the Marx Brothers knock the old west galley west uh, I'd never heard that before galley west is apparently a term originating in the 17th century which means into destruction or, confuse, or confusion as in being knocked galley west uh, I didn't know that before, and I'm going to start using it constantly. <laughs> See how many times you can get it in, in the rest of this recording. All right, Matthew, I'm going to knock you galley west with the number of times <laughs> <laughs> I use the phrase galley west. Um, there's a couple of interesting things here, isn't it? Once again, in the uh, the odd shots department, the uh, the shot of Chico that they use uh, to, to, uh, to put his name under is of him half asleep. Yes. Which is... A, a curious moment. And then we also get the uh, the sweep him out of the gutter gag uh, cut before the laugh line <laughs> with with uh, with classic uh, MGM attention to detail. Yes. Uh, but we do get um, the, our first entirely new line. It's the first of two. First of two in a row, in fact. There's one in the big store as well. But here we get Groucho saying, It's just like a movie. Yeah, and, you know, because, as mentioned uh, earlier this episode... 
because I have seen these trailers so many times on those cheap collections of three VHS tapes that you used to buy for seven ninety nine in a bin uh, at some store. I mean, I've seen these trailers over and over again, and that is very vivid in my mind. It's just like a movie. Groucho saying that uh, it's. Uh, as familiar as anything that's actually in the film, maybe more familiar, uh, a curious moment. And we have some more delightful uh, publicity copy here. Gold rush days, the untamed West, where men were men and women loved like wildcats. When killers were quick on the draw and six shooters barked. Really? That's the best... <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've got, huh? Uh, we might note that the film includes zero seconds of footage showing women loving like wildcats. And I'd like <laughs> to know what that would look like. <laughs> Laughter and lovelies, romance and action. MGM's rootin' tootin' shootin' musical comedy, Go West. <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, I must watch it sometime. Oh, you'd like it. It's just like a movie. <laughs> and you'll be knocked galley west by it. <laughs> I'm sure I will. <laughs> uh, well, the next one is kind of a big deal, the trailer for The Big Store. It's unusual yes. and specific, and it starts with some new footage created just for the trailer. It's Yes, to that extent, it's obviously... They're most interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's the, I presume I'm right in saying it's the, apart from isolated little moments like uh, it's just like a movie and, and then indeed one that we'll get to in a moment in here, um, I guess it's the only bit of totally original studio shot Mark's footage since House That Shadows built. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, unless you count the, um, the roaring in the place of the MGM lion. Yes, yes, that's, yeah. Apart from that, though, it's, it, it really is, isn't it? I mean, obviously, it's not, it's not funny, but, uh, you know, you, you can't have everything, particularly not in, in 1941. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, a, a fairly longish, uh, self-contained bit of, of unique Marx footage. So to that extent, at least, um, it's their most interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a typically ponderous sort of MGM setup. Um, we get an actor who's, who's apparently Henry O'Neill, um, an actor who notched up 179 screen credits between The Strong Arm in 1930 and North by Northwest in 1959. And he knocked off this trailer uh, in his spare time between shooting no fewer than 11 movies in 1941, including the remake of The Trial of Mary Dugan, which was directed by Norman Z. MacLeod. With sound. Yes, with sound. Uh, no other significant marks connections for, for Henry, although... True obsessives may wish to note, parenthetically at least, his appearance in 1934's Madame du Barry, and the fact that in Laurel and Hardy's Air Raid Wardens, he plays a character called Rittenhouse. Uh, do beware the edited version of this trailer that shows up on some of those aforementioned uh, the public domain compilations that cut most of his uh, speech going straight from I have a most important announcement to make right to the Marx Brothers are retiring uh, with none of the, uh, the stuff about Sarah Bernhardt that takes up about a minute of this trailer. Um, but yes, once, once he's got that out of his system, the, the boys themselves rush on. Uh, to say, uh, that's right, we're on our way, and where do we go from here? Uh, and then some stock footage of a, of a, of a crowd uh, tries to convince them not to retire. But don't worry, 
they're going to anyway. <laughs> but but since you have gathered by the many thousands outside this window to spontaneously protest the announcement <laughs> we just made at this desk, what the hell? We'll show you a few clips from <laughs> the big store, our first farewell picture. I like this uh, this little piece, you know, um, as as you correctly point out, it's not very funny. I mean, we can't say that it's prime Marx Brothers material, but I find it very nice. And I like the Sarah Bernhardt stuff that uh, this actor playing a film executive uh, says at the beginning that, you, as you mentioned, is often deleted when this appears in Marx Brothers compilations. Years ago, probably before most of you started to attend the theater, Sarah Bernhardt made a farewell appearance. In fact, she made 14 farewell appearances. She made them each year, and each year it was more profitable. Each time the public flocked to the theater to bid farewell to the divine Sarah. Now, after, lo, these many years, there is to be another farewell. Um, it's nice. I think it sort of places the Marx Brothers in a showbiz context, you know, a showbiz history context. It also kind of reveals, perhaps with some element of wishful thinking, that, you know, we're calling this our retirement, but uh, we'll see what happens. The the door is left open. Yeah, yeah. And something about the line, you know, they say, that's right, folks, we're on our way. But where do we go from here? I don't know. It's a vaguely... Mm. touching moment uh, where where do the marx brothers go from here and uh, where might they have gone from here if things had uh, worked out differently uh, as we know there were still two films to come after the big store but certainly the team in or out of the film world uh, could have done more could have gone to many other places from here that they didn't go to and uh, as we've discussed a lot on this show and so uh, I don't know this this little piece kind of hits me in the heart even though it is as you point out very schlocky and sort of lame yeah when he says where do, where do we go from here you should hear somebody in that crowd shouting out try universal yeah. they've got the WC fails <laughs> that's right <laughs> Uh, we get another, once we get into the sort of proper trailer with clips from the film and uh, text on the screen, we get another one of these, Tony Martin, who sings love songs to a lovely listener, Virginia Gray. <laughs> Boy, she sure can listen to Tony Martin. She she doesn't look upset or anything. Uh, you'll want to say, come again and not farewell to the Marx Brothers when you see their uproarious comedy the big store and uh a little bit of uh footage that's not in the film too yeah a strange one though because it's uh it's this is groucho's line i used to do this in vaudeville uh which he says um when uh, when harpo is is sat on his shoulders during the the frantic bicycle and, and roller skate climax but the odd thing is uh on this occasion that that shot is actually in in the film um, including his lips moving, uh, but it but it's covered with music. Uh, very odd that that a line that they obviously shot and thought good enough to put in the trailer is blanked out with music in the actual film. Yeah, I wonder how and why that happened. It would be, I believe, the only time the word vaudeville or vaudeville is ever spoken mm. in a Marx Brothers film. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is a a really sort of interesting line in that respect, isn't it? it it's uh, very strange that it that it's not in the 
Uh, anything else on the, the big store? Um, I think I think I can very safely say a notably different take of the and women. That's a fine. Let there be wine. And women. And the song. And women. And the caviar. And women. Yeah, it seems and feels different. Yeah. And doesn't it immediately follow another line about women? I didn't make a note of it. But I, I noticed that. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, it's only a woman. And then they. Right. they yeah. Yeah, it yeah. seems like Groucho just talks about women, the whole picture. And, yes, and yeah. that Groucho mentioning the subject of women is in itself enough for hilarity. Yeah. But the great thing about the uh, getting another another bash at that uh, and women is is um, you you realise that the, there was obviously much more than one occasion on, on which Groucho was pelted with that confetti, <laughs> and he really does look pissed off, doesn't he? Every time yes. he really could do without that. <laughs> yes, indeed. That that was the kind of undignified experience that made Groucho not interested in making any more of these movies. <laughs> Well, for A Night in Casablanca, we have two trailers for this film, although neither is an original release trailer. Uh, both are interesting in their own ways. There is a trailer that you can find on the TCM website and elsewhere that involves only film stills with a voiceover from a narrator. And uh, it feels like an older trailer, like from perhaps the 1950s or a decade or two later, uh, but no actual footage from the movie. Madness, mayhem, and mirth mingle in a wild melange of Marx Brothers buffoonery as the clown princes of comedy bring you their inimitable spoof of a Bogart classic in... A night in Casablanca. Yeah, it, it, it's odd, isn't it? Because it looks... I mean, it's its only about a, just over a minute long, isn't it? There's no clips. There's no um, info. It doesn't say, you know, a masterpiece reissue or anything like that. You know, there's no distributor name on it. It's just literally just the film title, uh, the Marx Brothers and some and some photos with a, with a voiceover that kind of sounds like TV almost. I mean, I'm... I might have been tempted to think it was it was from a TV screening, it, it, except for the fact that that wouldn't be something that was commonly done. Certainly not here, and I think not where you are either. So yeah, I can only assume it's it's um, a cinema reissue, but it 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 feels fifties ish. It's obviously obviously not an original because it doesn't say United Artists, and and it, and also it, it makes great play of the fact that that it's. Um, in fact, rather more of a play than the film itself does. That it's a, a kind of a, a spoof on on Bogart's Casablanca, which, at the time, uh, it was you know true or not. The the the, the idea was that that you they couldn't say that because of this spurious uh, Warner Brothers legal stuff. So so the fact that it just just glibly says you know like uh, Bogart the Bogart classic um, means that it you know yes they're, they're inimitable spoof of the Bogart classic yes yeah so it can't be original for for that reason if not for half a dozen others yeah uh, it does feel like television although one count against that theory is that it's a strange length you know mm. for TV it's just over one minute uh, although it does feel like. It was designed to be attached to other notices, you know, like a, a station would come on at the end and say when it would be shown, or uh, maybe even a cinema would have a, a card following it with information about when it could be seen. Yeah. Uh, it, it does uh, highlight some of the co-stars, which is something 
very few of these trailers in general do. Mm. It mentions Segruman as the Nazi spy, and it also mentions curves thrown by delectable Lisette Verea. <laughs> yes, but not the two, the, the, the either of the two um, love interests. Don't don't get a, right. don't get a look in, which is which is again interesting. So I, I think it's definitely pitched at at a, at a kind of revival audience, not ju- not just a reissue of the film, but specifically, you know, for for Marx fans, you know, it's got that kind of a feel to it, hasn't it? Yes, indeed. Uh, our own Bob Gasell found a news item about film trailers with references to what must have been the original trailer. And it actually quotes some of the voiceover at the top of the original Night in Casablanca trailer that we haven't seen. Uh And uh, if anyone out there has, get in touch with us. It began with text on the screen saying, F-L-A-S-H, clear all news wires, alert the networks, here is news. A bulletin has just been handed to me. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are standing, sit down. If sitting, lie down. We cannot be responsible for the effect of this announcement. Are you ready? Here it is. The Marx Brothers are back. Right. I mean, that is, yeah, that's exactly what one would have expected of an original release trailer, wasn't it? I mean, the the, the whole point of the film, the whole selling point of the film was that the Marx Brothers were back, not that Sig Ruman was back. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, so that, that again, reinforces the, 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 the this strange one that we do have can't possibly be anything like an original release trailer yeah. it's a little reminiscent of the duck soup and day at the races trailers that begin with these you know very officious mm. announcements from from some unspecified management demanding silence or something and treating the arrival of a new marx brothers film as a sort of cataclysmic <laughs> event on the world stage um, and then we have one other Night in Casablanca trailer, which is much more recent, and yet tonally it feels a lot more like what the original trailer might have felt like. It's the trailer that accompanied the recent and excellent Blu-ray release of Night in Casablanca. And it's very artfully assembled in emulation of classic Hollywood trailers. Yes, it's much more of a of a of a conscious pastiche, isn't it, of of the style? Whereas the the horse feathers one is 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 much more kind of uh, cut and paste, isn't it? Somebody's actually put some thought into this one, so well done them. Yeah, with the same sort of animated text and and moving transitions, it's interesting to see a trailer in that style, which I suppose we can call the National Screen Service style. Um, but you know, perfectly sharp with the restored footage looking glorious, and uh, you know, razor sharp uh, outlines around those animated letters. Yeah, I always, always hate it when people put fake grain on on stuff to make it look like you yeah. know. So, so yeah, fortunately, none of yeah, that. nobody has artificially created the impression that someone put a cup of coffee down on this trailer. <laughs> and then finally love happy the available original trailer for this one is not in english but it's out there yeah yeah the english one uh if if indeed there ever was one i, I presume there must have been uh has vanished but we do have the trailer for uh una notte sweet teti which is Italian for A Night on the Roofs, <laughs> uh, the rather charming uh, Italian uh, title. Again, it's, it's, it's a nice trailer. It makes the film look a lot more Marx Brothers-y than it is. 
Marilyn Monroe is is introduced by name by the announcer, which makes me think either that this too is a re-release or possibly that it just wasn't released in Italy until quite a bit later when, when she had made a name for herself. I guess that could be settled if somebody could find the... Italian release dates for the film, but certainly on you know on its original kind of 1949-1950 basis, I doubt anyone would have named Marilyn Monroe in the uh, in the trailer. The most interesting thing, though, uh, and it's a very interesting thing, is that we've got quite a nice big chunk from the original version of the of the final scenes here that vanished when it was reshot to include the rooftop chase. We've got Groucho searching Madame Igalici, the, the point in which uh, in the film he says, if this was a French picture, I could do it, but taking place in his office, not on the roof. So that's a very, very valuable piece of uh, footage indeed. I'm not quite sure what he's saying in Italian. The first bit he says sounds like uh, ti piaci, which means do you like it? Uh, the rest I can't make out because it's too mumbly, but I certainly don't hear Francesi in there. So I imagine they've given him a whole new line, presumably because the differences in terms of censorability between French and American films simply doesn't apply between French and Italian ones. Uh, so it wouldn't have made sense to say if this was a French picture I could do it because he could presumably do it in an Italian one as well. Ah. So it sounds like they've given him um, they've given him a whole new line there. So if anyone uh, can can make it out. Uh, more clearly than I can. It'd be interesting to know what he does say there. Yes, indeed. The trailer visually feels very much like the trailers we've been talking about. You know, it has the same kind of animated sort of ransom note typeface salad um, look to to the text on the screen. Uh, But as you say, it does have a voiceover announcer uh, which I don't think any of these other trailers have had. Um, some of them have uh, an on-screen presence saying, you know, we request absolute silence or the Marx Brothers are retiring from the silver screen. Um, but here we actually have narration. There's no way of knowing if that was just for this Italian trailer or if the English language equivalent also had uh, narration, but uh, if so, it's the dawn of narration as a feature of these trailers. That brings us to the end of our list of trailers for the Marx Brothers films. Any words of summation before we uh, leave this subject behind? Just to reiterate, uh, to 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 put out put out the appeal. If any of you know of any uh, anything that could fill any of those missing gaps, we're we're missing um, uh, an original coconuts trailer. The the horse feathers one we hopefully have got on the way. Uh, anything from a night in Casablanca, uh, a, an English language love happy, or indeed any other foreign ones. There must be other foreign ones about. And uh, either we just struck it lucky that one time in terms of uh, extra footage, or or who knows what else is out there. I'm thinking particularly, obviously, of a night at the opera. So don't rule out trailers as a viable uh, subject for uh, for inquiry because you you never know what's going to be in them. Yeah, and as a, as the Love Happy trailer we've just discussed suggests, uh, looking for foreign versions of these trailers may be uh, the best lead that we can offer from this episode. Uh, I did a little bit of cursory searching, I'm sure you did too, uh, and I didn't uncover any treasure, but, uh, but I only searched 
cursorily and uh, you know searching for the Marx brothers as they as they were billed in other languages um, in in video archives and so forth may well turn up more than we've discussed here and um, there there may well be some some gold in them thar hills A couple of months ago in our very popular episode 61, we interviewed Don Scardino, the great director, producer, performer, and songwriter. Don talked about his lifelong love of the Marx Brothers and about his most recent film, a romantic comedy written by and starring Mariette Hartley and Jerry Soroka, and entitled Our Almost Completely True Love Story. Staying with the theme of this episode, which is movie trailers, we will now listen to a bit of the trailer for this film, which conveys why it might be of particular interest to our listeners. Okay, you start. Okay. Finding true love in Hollywood has never been easy. Hollywood? Okay, well, the, the valley, but still, you get my point. When it comes to my dating life, as Groucho said, I've had a perfectly wonderful evening. And this wasn't it. Who is it? Uh, swordfish. What? Uh, that's the password, swordfish. No, it, it's it's Jerry. I thought you said swordfish. Yeah, I, I, I did. Well, why did you say swordfish? Oh, well, it's the Marx Brothers. <laughs> well, some people think they're funny. Well, uh, can I get some help over here? Hello. Oh, hello. Uh, welcome to You Bet Your Boy. If the stars align just right... Hi. Hi. A tall shiksa Hollywood icon might just fall for a short Jewish leprechaun who does voices. Can you do a dead on Woody Allen? Can I can, can I do a dead on Woody Allen? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for a man of my <clears throat> my gender. This is our story. Our almost completely true story. Our almost completely true love story has been seen on the festival circuit where it's racked up numerous awards and it will be released in select cities and on streaming platforms, including Amazon, Apple TV and Google Play on December 8th, 2023. So coming right up and we are pleased to welcome our special guest. His epic show business career includes Godspell on stage and film. Roles on dozens of television shows, including Shameless, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, The West Wing, Star Trek Voyager, Murphy Brown, Seinfeld, and a lot more, and a great deal of animation voice work on shows including Family Guy, Cow and Chicken, Duckman, and the 1998 film Ants, uh, beloved to me and I'm sure to many of our listeners too. Uh, we are thrilled to have him here, Mr. Jerry Soroka. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Good morning. I've been waiting for this for how how many weeks? It's been a long time in the making. Yeah, yeah. We like to make people wait for this particular honor. <laughs> well, the wait is over. <laughs> <laughs> At long last. Uh, and uh, Jerry, we always uh, begin with our guests by asking them, for their Marx Brothers origin stories. How did you first discover the work of the Marx Brothers and what has it meant to you over the years? Well, my my dad uh, gave me one of his famous, sit down, you're going to watch this. <laughs> and I, I didn't know, I may have been the second grade 
and I watched, and I believe it was Night at the Opera, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe what they were doing, and what they were saying, and how they. It, it just knocked my socks off. So, this uh, I'll jump right over. Last weekend, my grandkids were here, thirteen, ten, and eight, and I sat them. I said, "Sit down." <laughs> I do my, my dad's voice. I said, sit, sit down. I got something. And I popped in the DVD of Animal Crackers. And uh, they said, well, what is this? And I said, uh, not too many questions, please. Just watch. <laughs> oh, actually, I gave, them the ba- I gave them the background of the five brothers, where they grew up, and uh, how it all started, and how one brother became their agent, and one brother was more or less a straight man, and the other three were just lights out. So I, I put it on. I didn't realize, I hadn't seen Animal Crackers in a while. I didn't realize that there's an awful lot of dialogue in between the songs. And uh, the songs came on, and that kind of captivated them. They they stayed for about a half hour, and the younger one, uh, Zyla, the girl, says, said to me, they're very funny. I said, good, I'm glad you like them. Next time we'll... We'll see a different a different movie. She may be I don't know. She may be a little young for it, but uh, that's what I remember. My dad sitting me down, and I just just absolutely fell in love with them. So, how old did you say you were when you when you first saw them? I think it was the second grade. So that's uh, let's see, second grade. That'd be about I was about forty two. <laughs> <laughs> did a particular member of the team. Uh, grab you when you first saw them as a child or was it the the their impact as a group the impact as a group i think um later on um when i was doing uh voiceover commercials in new york um there was a lady at cunningham and walsh whose name was maxine marks and i found out by sitting in the waiting room with the other act they said oh this is this is uh, checo's daughter she came out very businesslike, and she read my name off. I hadn't met her yet, and I started to walk down the hall with her to go into the recording studio, and I said to her, uh, all right, now I come with you, but listen to me. I don't know how good I'm going to be, and she turned around, and she said, you're, you're doing uh, uh, Checo. I said, well, I think his name was a Chico. She says, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Checo, he he loved the girls, and he he was always chasing girls, the chicks. I said, oh, all right, they don't do it anymore. <laughs> Every once in a while, she'd tell me a quick story about Uncle Groucho. And it was just like, wow. She wasn't particularly funny, Maxine, but uh, listen, sometimes the apple falls a long way from the tree, I guess. Wow. Well, you know, uh, when we spoke to Don Scardino uh, a few episodes ago, he told us that he had occasionally crossed paths with Maxine doing commercial work in New York, but that he had never really gathered the nerve to talk to her about Chico because he was concerned that it might inhibit his chances of being cast in commercials. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you gathered the courage to impersonate him right to her. No matter what I did, she'd correct it. And uh, that was fine. (laughs) Many Marx Brothers fans over the years have had their pronunciation of Chico's name corrected, but few can boast that it was corrected by 
Maxine Marks yes. herself. Yeah. Uh, well, among your many talents, Jerry, you're a particularly capable impressionist. And um, in this film, our almost completely true love story, you impersonate lots of comedians and, and show business figures, um, not exclusively, but particularly the Marx Brothers. And your ability to inhabit these voices, just you're like a cast of thousands unto yourself. I wish they all got paid. <laughs> That'd be nice, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yes, it's like when Groucho told Gummo there are really two Groucho Marxes, and Gummo says, how come I'm only getting commission from one of them? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So tell us about the genesis of this film. You and Mariette Hartley wrote this script together, and it's uh, semi-autobiographical. How did it come about? Well, um, we uh, I'd written uh, a film 10 years ago um, about senior softball comedy but it was how senior softball changed this doctor's life and uh it it got some interesting uh, feedback in fact we had lovely um uh, meetings with gary marshall uh, and gary saw all the players as all his friends faces that we know would be playing these parts and uh gary i i played senior softball with gary and, and that's how I knew him. And, uh, and then Gary passed, uh, shockingly. And we got pretty far with the, with the movie, and then things just kind of fell apart. So I said to Marianne, I said, uh, say, listen, uh, Missy, why don't we write something that we can actually produce? You know, we, we can raise the money for, we won't need anybody. And, uh, she said, okay, let's do it. We'd never written together. We did two plays together. And uh, we started to write, and it just flowed. It just was an absolute joy to write. And uh, I called Scardino, because Don was involved with the senior softball movie. And I called Don, and I said, I'm, I'm sending you as we do dueling Jack Benny's, Don and I. And... Uh, I don't know if you watch Jack Benny, but Don Wilson sure. was his announcer. So I always, we always get on the phone and say, oh, hello, Don. Oh, Don, look it. I wrote a script, and I'm going to send it to you, you see. And uh, he said, okay, great. And I sent it, and a couple of days later, he called, and he said, let's, let's do this. Do you know how to get it done? I said, no, that's where you... Anyway, we, uh, we mortgaged our house, second mortgage, Although Marriott says to people, we actually mortgaged the neighbor's house, but they don't know it yet. <laughs> so things begin to fall into place. And we, we called friends uh, like Peter McNichol and, and Tess Harper and Morgan Fairchild and Peter Onorati and Stu Pinkin and Bernie Capel, who lives around the corner. And they not only did they all say yes, and I said, don't you want me to send the script? And they said, no, no, no. Just tell me when you want me and, and send me my uh, sides. Um, things came together and we started a shoot and Don Don was wonderful as he always is and uh, it was just terrific and I can't I can't wait to get people's I mean, we've had some great reactions especially in the film festivals that we've gone to. Uh, Sedona was just the, one of the first ones and it was just amazing. It was absolutely amazing. 
just to go back to the writing, because um, I'm always interested in the, the kind of the dynamics of collaboration. Was this one of those occasions where there's kind of one person at the keyboard and the other one is pacing up and down, barking out thoughts? Or was it both talking into a tape recorder? What, what, was, your, what was your process? Um, we actually, we, we, I didn't hear that accent before. <laughs> um, our, our agent actually is in, is in London. Carl's in London. He's our agent. And um, I, I just love getting on the um, Zooms with Carl. And uh, I'll go into um, uh, Liverpoolian. You know, I'd say to him, you know, get, get up here in the nasal, you know. And <laughs> it's all very, very important. And he said, well, it's not, it's not bad, Jerry. But uh, so getting back to your question. Um, yes, Marriott paced up and down holding a tape recorder. No, no, no. Um, no, she sat here on the couch and I sat over there on the computer and we just, how about a scene like this? And, and then it just, it worked me at the computer and her, uh, sitting and uh, laughing. That's it. You and Marietta are obviously a great couple and you have a very, uh, specific and unique chemistry together on the screen in the movie. Have you acted together much before, or was this a, the first time you teamed up on screen together? Well, we, we, um, we've been married, uh, what, 18, I think we've been married 18 years. When I first saw her, we met at um, a Screen Actors Guild board meeting. We were both elected to SAG, and uh, she walked in, and she walked past, and I said, Wow. It just happened. I was sitting next to Tony Roberts from all the Woody Allen movies. I knew him from New York. And he had flown to L.A. for the meeting. And Tony said, what are you hoo-hawing about? I said, <laughs> oh, my God. He, he said, she's so far above you in more ways than one. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah. And the next thing we knew, um, we had to introduce ourselves and say what what uh, chapter we were from. And I was substituting at the meeting for James Cromwell, who was six foot six. <laughs> I'm five foot four. So I said, Jerry Soroka, Los Angeles board. And I jumped on the chair, substituting for James Cromwell. I jumped on the chair <laughs> and I saw her out of the corner of my eye. And she was laughing. And I went, strike one, strike one. <laughs> Followed her to lunch. Uh, she had a plate full of green salad. I tugged on her coat. She turned around. She said, what do you want? And I said, um, you going to eat all that? And she said, it's none of your business, is it, really? <laughs> followed, her, followed her to a table. We sat down with 10 other people at the table, and we, can, we insulted each other for almost an hour. <laughs> and at the end of the day, um, I, I met her in the lobby. I saw her in the lobby. I, I followed her. And a little boy came up to her and asked her to sign a matchbook. And she said to him, you don't even know who I am, do you? And the little kid said, no. <laughs> and she said, is this for your mom over there? Yeah. She said, okay. She signed it. And she waved to the mom. She said, here it is. And she and I thought, that is so nice. Wow. She's nice, too, besides being sarcastic and beautiful. And... uh I walked up to her and I said, well, that was uh, interesting. Do you, do you sign many matchbook covers? Uh, you should carry a little pad with you or a stamp with your name on it. 
And she said, I understand you're going through a difficult divorce. And I said, I understand that too. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, I've been through it. She said, and if you ever want to go out just for a couple of laughs, see a movie, give me a call. Could I have your number? She gave me her phone number. I called her. We went to a movie. Well, we had sushi first, and uh, I wasn't a big sushi guy, and the bill came. was I remember it was $99, and I looked at it, and I went, $99? For heaven's sake. Look it. I can't afford this kind of fish. I like the cooked, the cooked kind for about $10. She said, I'll pay for the movie. <laughs> Been together ever since. And uh, to answer your, remember the question you asked yesterday? I do recall that, yes. We, uh, yes, we did a play together uh, here in LA. I played a little uh, nerd who, who couldn't get up the uh, gumption uh, to date her, but who was infatuated by her. And then I wrote a play, and we did that together. So the, it was those two. At, we, we really meshed uh, working together. And um, I had a wonderful part for her in the senior softball movie, uh, and it didn't get made. And then I came up with the let's do something we can d actually do. We can be the, the cog, you know, that drives it. So we wrote it, and things began to fall into place. And here we are, on your show. Well, I am anyway. Hey, Jerry, it's Bob. I, I just wanted to chime in uh, real quick and say thanks so much for uh, uh, making this uh, character a Marx Brothers fan. I, I think many Marx fans dream of finding that perfect mate, you know, someone who loves them like we do. But in the end, I guess we just need someone to at least tolerate them. <laughs> It's funny you mention that because there is that scene where Maeve Quinlan, lovely actress, who I date, who I meet in the bar with Lloyd, and and then later on I take her back and I I tell her a night at the opera is going to be on, and from the other room she says, I don't really like opera, and I said, you'll love this opera. <laughs> and she comes in and falls asleep. That actually happened. <laughs> that That is complete, completely true. Uh, I... Except that I, I covered the girl, lovely girl, with a blanket, and I left because I knew if she didn't get these guys, she wasn't going to get me, and it wasn't going to work. <laughs> yes, that's relationship litmus test. Yes, absolutely. And and you can really eliminate a lot of names from your list by those standards. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And yeah, here's and in light of uh, Bob's comments, yeah, here's a beautiful romantic comedy that culminates in uh, interest in watching the Marx Brothers as being a sort of yardstick of, uh, of compatibility and love. Right. And we should mention, uh, without giving away any details or spoilers or anything, that Noah makes an appearance in the film. Uh, we do see Noah in the film. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But yes, I'm, I'm sort of in the movie in a very small way. And uh, Delighted to see it. Uh, delighted to see that. Um, um, well, uh, I want to uh, ask you this. This travels uh, slightly out of the Marx Brothers neighborhood, but I, I we have to ask you about Woody Allen. Um, Woody Allen is another one of the comedians who you impersonate uh, in the film. Uh, 
you do an incredibly, just a bullseye of a Woody Allen impression. And because Ants is among your credits, the 1998 animated film that uh, that stars uh, Woody Allen as the voice of an ant, um, uh, I have to <laughs> ask you about uh, your, your feelings about him and his work and times that your paths have crossed. The first time I, I saw him was, I was 18, I was on the beach, out in Long Island and walking along and um, uh, I saw Dick Cavett walking toward me uh, with a, a beauty on each arm. <laughs> and uh, at 18, I was still doing stand-up and I thought, well, an opportunity. And when you're 18, you do things, you don't think about it generally, you just kind of do them and then think, why did I do that? And I walked up to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Cavett, would you like to hear a impersonation of you? And he said, I would. Don't be silly. Go ahead and do it. <laughs> let, me, let me hear him. And I said, I don't know what I'd say. Uh, my guest is, uh, he said, oh, it's, it's pretty good. I said, I'd, li- I'd like to be on your show. He said, call. And he gave me the talent coordinator's name and call, call her and um, we'll come see you at a, are you appearing anywhere at the moment? I said, yes, on the beach. <laughs> okay. So we leave. I had, I had her name. Later, I'm walking along with a psychiatrist who was staying at my cousin's house with me, and I didn't know what she did. And I did these little boys. I do them in the, I do them in the, in the movie of the Bloomgarten Boys, Billy and Johnny, Herbie. And I've been doing them for a long time. And she said to me, do, do you know when you're doing these boys? And I said, no, it just, I don't know. She said, can you, can you control them? I said, no. And of course I was putting her on. And as I looked up on the beach, there was Woody Allen sitting there with a sailor's hat pulled down reading. And I said, oh my goodness, I got to go up. I got to go. She said, can I come with you? I said, yeah. We walked up and I stood there until he looked up, stood at the blanket until he looked up. And I said, how would you like to hear a terrific imitation of Woody Allen? And he looks up and he says, who's going to do it? You or her? <laughs> and I said, well, she she is, but she doesn't. And she was, of course, absolutely, she didn't know what to say. I said, well, I, I do Woody Allen, but not quite as good as her. He said, Let me hear it. I said, well, I, you know, reading a book of keep being interrupted by... <clears throat> idiots coming by and and talking to me that's that's terrific you know it's a very very good Woody Allen uh unbeknownst to me because I'm zeroed in on him a girl turns over looks up and she says it's better than your dick cabot (laughs) (laughs) pretty embarrassing um and and he says let me let me hear your cabot so I do it and he says it's it's very good. And um, that was it, right? Screech ahead to, I don't know, 10 years later, a friend of mine gets me a job hosting for a man who was running for mayor in New York. And I, I should look up these, what year it was, because I don't know whether it was Michael Bloomberg or whatever it was. There were a lot of stars and he asked me to MC because I did Ed Sullivan. So he wanted me to MC as Ed Sullivan the night. And uh, I tell this story, and at the end of the night, 
Woody walks up to me. I see him walking up to me. And he says, hi. I said, hi. He said, that story that you told about, you know, meeting me on the beach, you made it up, right? I said, no, actually, uh, it's a true story. And he said, I, I don't remember you. And he walked away. <laughs> 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 you know, I had my own, my own personal moment there with him. And I think this leads into that uh, Radio Day story that you mentioned to me. Why don't, you, why don't you tell that one? Okay. I get a call. Do you want to audition for Woody Allen? And I said, what? He said, uh, go over to 82nd and Park Avenue and wait on the corner. I'm going to audition outside on the corner of 82nd and Park. Go. There'll be somebody there to meet you. I get over to 82nd and Park. It's about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And nobody is there. I walk, there's a limo there, and I thought, this is his. I walked over to the, knocked on the window, and I said, excuse me, are you driving uh, Woody, Woody Allen? He says, no. You looking for him? I said, yeah. He said, go in that door. So I go in the door, ask the doorman, and he says, end of the hall, straight ahead. I walk in, and there's an office, and the girl says, who are you? She hands me the script. Uh, they'll take you in a minute. Casting director comes out and she says, are you ready? And I said, well, okay. I was playing four or five different characters on the radio show. I had my own radio show. and That was the scene, including a, a, an African-American maid woman named Reba. So she said, now, there's a few rules. Don't look at Mr. Allen. Don't address him. Just say your lines, and then we'll, you can go. Okay. Got it? I go in. I can't even find him. I look around <laughs> the room. There's three people sitting at a table. I go in the front. They sit, ready? And then I realize, you know those bins where they hang used to hang film? They're big white bins. They look like laundry bins. And all the f- pieces of film were hanging. And I saw some feet. And I thought, he's hiding. He's actually hiding. Anyway, I do the scene, and they say, thank you very much. It was Julia Taylor. Thank you very much. I said, oh, thank you. And as I walk past the bin, I get a glimpse of him, and he says, nice job. Very nice. And I leave. I get home. The phone rings. I got it. Well, I study this scene backwards and forwards for the two weeks I had go to the shoot, get on the set. I can't remember a thing. I am like, you know, flop sweat. It was just me in the scene and a microphone in the studio. And I do the, I do all the voices. And then I walk toward camera at the end of the scene, break, break the fourth wall. And I say, this is a wonderful time to be on the radio, to reach people in their homes Wonderful scene. Lovely. And I got a chance to do four different voices, one after the other. And uh, I can't I can't remember. Dialogue, the script girl says, you want to look at this? I said, yeah, you know, I know it. I just, she turns the script around so I can see it. She said, you didn't get any of these right. They set up the lights and they say, you got a half hour. And they put me in a room with Woody to wait. And 
I know from the audition that he's very shy. So we don't talk much. I come out. They're ready to shoot. They give me a stop mark on the floor with a sandbag. I walk toward camera and I stop at the sandbag. Then they remove the sandbag and put a piece of tape. We walk it through. I'm lost. And I am dying. How could I blow this? And Woody says, comes up to me, he says, well, what are you holding me? Because they, they read it, you know, from the script, radio and radio. He said, what are you holding? I said, just blank pieces of paper. He says, blank feet, give him the script. Because, you know, that's what they did. They, you know, they, 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 from this, this is crazy. They give me the script. And of course, once I have my blue blanket, I'm fine. I don't even need it once I have it in my hand. They call action. I do the scene, walk toward the camera, finish it off. And what he else cut. Wonderful. And cinematographer says, Woody, Woody. Or a momento, Woody. And he looks down, and my feet are this far over the tape mark. Right. And this is for obviously for focus. And uh, he says, What? He says, This is the feet. No good. This much. And I said, I just want you to know that I'm right on my mark. I'm an eight. The shoes are a 10. So Woody <laughs> tries to explain this. He's, he's on his mark. Shoes. Too big. <laughs> We're going to do it again. And, and we did it a second time. And Woody said, okay, we, we got it. And then the scene was cut. I go to see the movie. It's not in the movie. And I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. I run into him on the street six months later after the film comes out. And I'm with my son, who's about five. And... Uh, I see him walking toward me in his little army jacket and the hat pulled down over his head. And I get right in front of him so he can't move. And I said, excuse me, Reba Man. Was the name, Reba was the name of the maid. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. right. You were wonderful. I told you when we shot, it was perfect. I had four and a half hours of film. He said, so you cut my scene? You don't call, you don't write, you just cut the scene. <laughs> Who's this? Who's this? By the way, my, my son is in the movie too. He plays the waiter in the Mindy Sterling scene. And uh, he has a wonderful movie out called Dog Years that he wrote and produced. Well, we helped him produce it. And it's on Amazon, Dog Years. And and um, it's just, just a lovely movie. And uh, he couldn't have been couldn't have been easier to work with obviously handing me the script and it just it was it was really wonderful a wonderful experience and then ants i got a call from the casting director leslie feldman and she says we need you to do woody they fly me up to san jose and it's computer cubicles and there there must be 50 people all working on the movie i said what do, what do i do and they said you're going to you're going to do all his lines, and they're going to animate to your voice, and then Woody will come in and replace you. I said, well, I... anyway, it was a great job, and halfway through, I said to the director, after we'd gotten to know each other, I said, you know, you're not going to throw me a bone? He said, oh, yeah, we have a part for you. I play the bartender in a quick scene where the aunt walks in, the bartender talks to him, but all the yelling and screaming in ants is me, Woody didn't want to yell and scream. 
Ah. And it was, I thought it was really a lovely film, really nicely done. Yeah, I remember really enjoying it when it came out and just being so surprised by it. It just seemed so unlikely that, I mean, that was the sort yeah. of early in the age of CGI features. And um, and here's right. one with Woody Allen doing the lead. It just seemed so. And I remember seeing it um, in the theater in New York shortly after it opened and how the very first scene with the Woody Allen ant character, Z, lying on uh, his psychiatrist's couch, talking and yes. gesturing like Woody Allen, at getting huge laughs in the theater. People couldn't believe it, just the effect of this. Right, right. It yeah. seemed so, on one hand, so separate from his filmography, but uh, also completely worked. And, and now, having talked to you about it, I really want to take another look at that movie. I probably haven't seen it since uh, the late 90s. Yeah. I wonder if at any point when they were animating it, they said, you know, we like Jerry's read better on this one line. We're just going to leave it in. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I do remember the ants in the bar drinking aphid beer. That was the, the beverage of choice in oh, the ant world. Gee, that must have been your bartender character. Yeah. Yeah. They have a good memory. Well, I, I did see it a few times when it was new. It was it was an exciting ah. thing for Woody Allen fans at the time. You know, here was a movie that Woody Allen was involved in that actually had action figures associated with it. You know, you could <laughs> ah. you could buy toys of Woody Allen characters. That just never happened on any other occasion. Apart from September. Oh, the September <laughs> action playset, yes. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, this has just been a pleasure. And anything else uh, we want to uh, hit on before we uh, let Jerry go and uh, and wrap this up? So the film's opening in in New York, December eighth, at the uh, Village East Theater, Second Avenue, Village East Theater, and then yes. up in Washington State. We we decided not to have them too close together. <laughs> up in Mon Monroe, Washington, um, two places in Arizona: Sedona and Flagstaff. And uh, in San Diego, and um, and streaming. And uh, I said to the lovely people at, at our distributor, Vision, I said, "What does that mean, streaming?" They said, "Really? You you don't know?" I said, "No. How do you get the film?" And they said, "Well, it'll be available." I said, "Okay. I mean." <laughs> I could vouch for it. It works. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> the film will be streaming. It'll be steadily streaming. And also in cinemas in select cities on December 8th, which by the time this episode reaches uh, the ears of its listeners will be right around the corner. Right. Thank you. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Jerry. We really appreciate uh, your joining us for this. And uh, we will uh, definitely encourage our listeners to check it out. It will, Since it will be on all those streaming platforms, even if you don't live in a select city, you have no excuse not to see our almost completely true love story written by and starring Mariette Hartley and Jerry Soroka and directed by our old friend Don Scardino. Thanks again, Jerry, and uh, send our best to Mariette. Uh, I certainly will. I know she's a Three Stooges fan, and that's why she didn't want to <laughs> join Not us. Not true. But, uh, whatever. <laughs> 
And now we're going to close with a story about two of our listeners, Syl Leva and Sean Brennan. Syl Leva is an excellent graphic artist who created the artwork for our November Patreon postcard. Postcard number 11. It features likenesses of 45 people who are Marx Brothers or friends, relatives, collaborators, or other people associated with the Marx Brothers. And it's a thing of beauty. And by the time you hear this episode, that November postcard with Sill's spectacular design will be on its way to our Patreon subscribers at the $6 level and up. That's Students of Huxley, Huxley Students, Left-Handed Moths, and Firefly's Cabinet. If you'd like to see some of Sil Leva's work, much of which deals with classic comedians and, and old Hollywood and pop culture, you can find it on Instagram, where his handle is Scribbledon. Scribble, D-O-N. Meanwhile, there's listener Sean Brennan. And yes, that rhymes with Paul McCartney. <laughs> Sean is a member of the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group and a longtime autograph collector. Sean uh, wrote us a lovely email not long ago explaining that he had an extra Coconuts poster, which was autographed by Groucho in 1976. Sean has been looking to downsize his collection, and he loves the council and the podcast so much that he offered to give this poster signed by Groucho to the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Now, maybe you see where this is going. On the back of the November postcard, postcard number 11, there is a web address and a password. When you receive the postcard, go to the web address, enter the password, and you'll find a digital version of Sil Leva's artwork. We're somewhat breaking our own rule about distributing these cards, uh, these designs digitally, but there's a good reason for it. Uh, at that website, you will find a, a digital version of the artwork with each face numbered and an entry form you can use to tell us who's who in that picture. The first student of Huxley, Huxley student, left-handed moth, or Firefly's cabinet member to correctly identify all 45 faces or to come the closest by 12 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time on January 1st, 2024, will receive Sean Brennan's Coconuts poster signed by Groucho Marx. That is quite a treasure. We are proud to offer it. We want to thank Sean Brennan for that and Sil Leva for the beautiful postcard design soon to appear in the mailboxes of our Patreon members at the top four levels. And if you subscribe at one of those levels anytime before the end of 2023, you will receive the November postcard, even if you sign up in December. Uh, but don't wait until the end of the year because that is also the deadline for submitting the online entry form. We can only accept entries submitted through the online form at the web address on the back of postcard number 11. Anyone looking to join or for more information about our Patreon membership program, you can go to patreon.com slash Marx Brothers Council Podcast or go to MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com and click the big orange Patreon button at the top of the page. Uh, this seems to me a very nice way to uh, 
bring 2023 to a close. We are sure that all of you will enjoy the postcard and that one of you will cherish the poster forever. Me. <laughs> Matthew Coniums are ineligible for participating in this contest. Darn! As a... As are Noah Diamond's, Bob Gassell's, Silva's, and all their immediate families, and anyone they may be whispering to right now. Generally, Jerry, we give our guests the honor of selecting the closing music for each episode. Is there a Marx Brothers song or a piece of Marx Brothers-associated music uh, that you'd like to go out on this episode? Uh, well, you can't go wrong with Captain Spaulding, can you? Never. There's something that I'd like to state that he's too modest to relay. The captain is a moral man. Sometimes he finds it trying. This fact I'll emphasize, Miss Stress. I never take a drink unless somebody's buying. And he's a very moral man. If he hears anything obscene, he'll naturally repel it. I hate a dirty joke, I do. Unless it's told by someone who knows how to tell it. And he's a very moral man. Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on X. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!